Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Drip Podcast, the podcast where we need movies like we need our coffee. As always, I am Scott Lentz, here with my good friend and co-host, Christian Ubius. And Christian, we are kicking off a brand new blend of the month, one that has been curated by you, my friend. How are you feeling? You know, these three movies are are kind of power movies. Power movies? They're so good. They're powerful. They will barrel other people down and take you with them. They will kill you, Scott. These three movies will kill you. Well, I've seen all of them before, and I'm not dead yet. So That's hopefully what you think. The rest of us think you're dead. Kill me. Am I about to wake up in the Matrix? Is that what's going to happen, Christian? No. Well, sure. I guess to me that would be death. <laughs> I'm excited about this blend, knowing the movies that we'll be discussing, as there are definitely two that are widely regarded in the this movie is so good it could kill you range and one that is a little bit more mixed in terms of its reception and so i'm excited to rewatch and discuss that one with you later this month but we're starting in safe ground my friend so i turn it to you to introduce our first movie that we'll be discussing to kick off our new blend so the first movie that we're going to be discussing is 12 years of slave <laughs> It is the 2013 film. It was written by John Ridley and directed by Steve McQueen. The the story itself, and just a brief synopsis, tells of Solomon Northup, and it's a true story, who he was a New York-born, free, black man, kidnapped in D.C., and sold to slavery in the year 1841, where he spends 12 of his years trying to survive and also get back to his family. It stars Chiwetel Ejiofor as Solomon with a supporting cast of, like, amazing individuals. We've got uh, Lupita Nyong'o, Sarah Paulson, Brad Pitt, Michael Fassbender, Paul Dano, Benedict Cumberbatch. Like, the list is pretty incredible. Deep supporting cast. This is true. Yes. Yes, yes. Yeah, and one best picture one best adapted screenplay, one best supporting actress for Lupita Nyong'o, uh nominated for best directing. It's it's got a lot it 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 came out of the awards season pretty stacked. That it did, and it was one of those important slash groundbreaking awards season movies for a couple of reasons. The primary one being that Steve McQueen became the first black producer to win the award for best picture which it's unfortunate that it took 80 some academy award ceremonies for that to happen but hey progress is progress and of course a very important person in my life brad pitt received an oscar nomination for this film you know oscar win for this film (laughs) it's true it's true breaking very important ground there (laughs) and lupita nyango i mean this kind of propelled her she is now one of the most sought-after actresses. She kills everything. Even in the movie Us, which you're much more favorable on than I am, she is the star of that film. She crushes it. And this is her debut film performance. Like, she was fresh out of grad school. She went to Yale. Yale School of Acting. Yeah, casual. (laughs) So she's fresh out of grad school at Yale, hops onto the set for 12 Years a Slave, and then gives a an extraordinary performance and receives a lot of worthy acclaim 
let's just we're gonna go into more of the history behind 12 years a slave but scott do you remember watching this do you remember when you've seen it before i know that i've seen it and or i know that i've seen it before and i'm pretty sure i first watched it around the time of the best picture win i can't remember if i saw it at the time but 2014 that was the spring that i eventually graduated from high school i was getting pretty deeply into movies i i've talked about this before i've always loved movies but i was really starting to get into movies more seriously as a a thing to love and to study in my later high school years and so the oscars are naturally where i started and i tried to catch up with more best picture nominated movies and the following oscar ceremony would be the first where i really sought everything out and made sure to see it before the show but 2013 was the first year that I was actively trying to see more Best Picture nominees. I guess this is 2014, celebrating 2013. And so I would have seen it around all the hubbub of it receiving an Oscar nomination. And I loved it then, just really moved, even as a dumb high schooler. And now looking on it with slightly older and slightly wiser eyes, I was honestly even more impressed. Now, I saw it for the first time just last year <laughs> believe it or not it's not for the first time just last year and i chose to see it also to complete like my run of 2010's best picture films that i had not seen uh and this definitely stood out for several different reasons uh and one of the reasons i chose this was also steve mcqueen is fresh off of the small axe anthology which is considered one of the greater anthology film series just ever made and he is very well known for how intimate he uses his camera and the intimacy with which we see Solomon. So I wanted to be like, you know, Steve McQueen is having a moment. I want us to be part of that moment. I want us to ride the Steve McQueen wave because he is one of the greater directors who is currently existing. Yeah, he's definitely having another moment here. He went from being... What's the word? Not as consistent in his output, not in terms of quality, just in terms of quantity, to releasing five feature films in one year, which, of course, became the anthology series Small Axe. And I'm sure he's already cooking up his next project. So I'm, I'm happy to ride the Steve McQueen wave. I really have only seen this, and now I've seen it twice, and I saw Mangrove, which is my favorite movie of last year. And of course, because I'm a lazy fool, I didn't watch the rest of the Small Axe series yet. <laughs> Maybe one day add it onto the ever-growing watch list. But I'm, I'm excited. Steve McQueen is is definitely one of the... I don't know if it's too audacious to say one of the best directors alive, but certainly one of the best film directors of his generation, his age range. Before... You know, this is, this is The Blend. The Blend is 2010's Best Picture winners. Let's talk a little bit about what the 2010s have looked like in terms of Best Picture winners. Do you want me to run through it? Do you want to run through every single movie that's won Best Picture in the 2010s? Oh, let's do it. But uh, it's it's your blend, so I'll let you rattle off the names. Cool. So in 2010, the winner was The King's Speech. In 2011, The Artist. In 2012, Argo. 2013, 12 Years a Slave. 2014, Birdman or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance. 2015, Spotlight. 2016 Moonlight, 2017 The Shape of Water, 2018 Green Book, and 2019 Parasite. There are 
quite a few films there that I deeply, deeply love. I'm in 100% agreement. Just reflecting on this list when you were, or when we were talking about this blend, made me realize just how much I enjoyed the ones, the movies that won. And even though there are a few situations where I would have gone elsewhere, and I still haven't seen Green Book, and who knows if I will ever see Green Book, uh, not not much love for that controversial winner. But there are still some really, really solid movies. And even the ones that are less highly regarded are movies that I still really like. I remember really, really enjoying The King's Speech, even if it's it's still a travesty that <laughs> The Social Network did not win that year. I like The King's Speech. I really like The Artist, even though some people consider it to be one of the weaker winners of this decade. And so I'm excited to get get in a little more in the weeds with this group of winners. There's just some really, really excellent movies. I mean, the King's speech is fine. <laughs> Which is just the, the consistent rap rap for the King's speech. And that it's just a standard English biopic <laughs> costume drama. And it's, I, I agree with comedy. you though, that the artist is phenomenal. Which I, I don't, the artist is just so infrequently talked about when people are reflecting on best picture winners from this past decade. I feel like there's more made about 12 Years a Slave or more made about Moonlight, especially, or uh, obviously Parasite was a, a huge cultural moment in 2019. And the artist is a movie that just doesn't really get talked about anymore. And is honestly in, from my perspective, kind of dismissed just because of its silent gimmick. But I remember really earnestly loving it. <laughs> wanting It's a movie that I've wanted to watch again for a long time. I just, of course, never make the time. So maybe one day, <laughs> but it's, it's better than, than what it's lukewarm reputation uh, might, might lead you to believe. But let's, I mean, let's keep going. The one thing I think it's safe to say about 12 Years a Slave, no one ever really had a problem with 12 Years a Slave. This is true. It's a harrowing experience. It is a very emotional ride. And with just like the last tidbit of historical context in terms of the movie that I have, it, it's interesting to me how Steve McQueen has worked with Michael Fassbender for so many of his films that at this point they were kind of an established duo working in it. I don't know why, but I, I mean, I guess they're both British. I for, for some reason, Steve McQueen is not the first director who comes to mind when I think of Michael Fassbender, and yet they are the ones who have collaborated in the most. That being said, in the onset of the 2010 nominees, we have a lot of diversity. We have a lot of a, a lot of talent on display. And looking even at the other films nominated within the year that this won, American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Dallas Buyers Club, Gravity, Her, Nebraska, Philomena, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Or maybe it's Philomena. I don't know. I would probably be in agreement that 12 Years a Slave is the greatest of the nominees that we've been given. I think it's that's a safe opinion. I 
think that there are people, most people would agree with you too. Most people who care about the Oscars care about this stuff. Just that 12 Years a Slave was a combination of a phenomenal, exceptional movie, a brilliant work of art, and falling into some of these categories that the Academy likes to award. Uh, it's a biopic. It's a historical drama. It's about a heavy, heavy subject, obviously. And it's a combination of those factors being an Oscar-worthy movie, if you will, without succumbing to a lot of the Oscar bait problems that some other similar movies were criticized for. And the obviously fresh perspective of having a black director, black screenwriter, who were able to bring more to this movie than perhaps a, a white director and white writer may have that helped to propel 12 years to the win and all for the better. I mean, I, I look at that list and I still haven't seen all of the nominees from that year, but I, I deeply love her, <laughs> which I know some people deride as the, the, the movie where the man falls in love with his computer, but whatever. And I'm also a big it's fan of gravity. It is. It is so much more than that. And I'm also a fan of Gravity and American Hustle from that year. But despite how much I really either love or at least deeply enjoy those movies, I still think that 12 Years was the correct choice and the and the right deserving winner for that group. So I, it looks like we really want to talk more about 12 Years a Slave. So why don't we go into some fun facts? You ready for that, Scott? Oh, fun facts. This is not a very fun movie, but I can share some fun facts about it. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, start us off then. Give us your fun facts. So when I was doing a little research, uh, I happened across a little controversy. And there is some talk that there was a feud behind the scenes between Steve McQueen and John Ridley, who wrote the movie. And that Steve McQueen allegedly asked Ridley for co-screenwriting credit and Ridley would not budge. And they took up their dispute with the Writers Guild and everything, and it was a bit of a controversy. Later on, the two of them didn't mention each other when they were accepting their awards. Steve McQueen for Best Picture, John Ridley for Best Adapted Screenplay. And so there was all this talk, ooh, these two are really feuding. They didn't even thank each other in their speeches. But alas, the feud was not real. <laughs> they went on record later saying that they were glad to have worked with each other and there was no bad, no bad blood. So... Maybe there was a feud. Who knows? But it's, it it's not... It sounds to me like there was a feud and they're trying to cover it up. Yeah, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> always always appreciate a good feud story for, for a movie, though. Uh, you know, also, fighting for screenwriting credit, not the first time it would have happened in Hollywood history. <laughs> uh, new. No. <laughs> have you seen Mank, Christian? You know, I have. All right. Um, I have a pretty cool fact about this movie. And that is that several public schools campaigned for 12 Years a Slave, the original source material written by Solomon Northup, to be distributed through high schools and taught. And it has been taught at several schools for that reason. And Steve McQueen also going on record and quoted as saying, since first reading 12 Years a Slave, it has been my dream that this book be taught in schools. And that's pretty awesome. That is. It's... I've never read the book, but I would be fascinated to read it now, especially having rewatched the movie and really connecting with it and, and wanting to learn more about the history of slavery from primary sources, wanting to learn more about 
how horrible and evil it was and and just know the history better i feel like that'd be a fascinating book to read because i did not get to read it in high school so steve mcqueen for our next fact here is famously efficient in some ways despite his visual artist background and he managed to complete shooting in louisiana on in only 35 days on location with one camera (laughs) and apparently when he he there was a screening of the movie at the director's guild and he was interviewed after and when he shared that it made the room just burst out into laughter <laughs> like wondering how in the world he accomplished an on location shoot with one camera in only 35 days and this movie obviously is not a brief movie it's a 2 hour 15 minute historical almost epic and so he definitely garnered the respect of his peers there and you know also received many nominations from them throughout the award season as well but it's it's impressive 35 days on location this is also the man who was able to release five movies in one year. Exactly. He's an efficient guy. Knows what he wants. The other fun fact that I have is that Sarah Paulson was at the same time of this filming American Horror Story. And it be- the two schedules were overlapping. And so there was a chance that she wasn't going to be able to get cast in the movie. So they actually <laughs> uh, said that Fox was asked to push the shooting of American Horror Story back just one week so that she could be in the film as well. Good job, Fox. Way to oblige. (laughs) This movie is better because Sarah Paulson is in it. She's kind of terrible, though. Well, okay. Her character is terrible. (laughs) Her character is Not her. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much all the white people are terrible in this movie, with a few exceptions. but, But even the exceptions... It's like, oh, wow, you're treating a slave less evilly (laughs) than the other white people. Yes. Uh, Speaking of white people who were cast in this movie, last thing I'll say, one of the few consistent points of criticism for 12 Years a Slave is Brad Pitt's appearance in this movie. As we mentioned, he was a producer. He did join in the winning of the Best Picture Award. And so a lot of people criticize the movie for essentially casting him as like the good white guy, the one who's from Canada and ultimately assists Solomon in freeing him from this plantation. But according to Brad Pitt, he didn't just strong arm his way into a part on set. He, it was more of a business decision because they were able to get more funding for the movie if they could say that Brad Pitt was in it. So he and his production company were just trying to work with Steve McQueen and, and figure out some ways of helping the movie get made. And and that was one. They would tell financiers that Brad Pitt has joined the cast. Can you please give us more money? So criticize as you wish. <laughs> it's something I wanted to talk about with you regardless. But I just thought that was funny that <laughs> Brad Pitt, even though he was criticized for it, claimed, hey, it's it was mostly just for securing funding it's not because i strong-armed my way into it or anything now the last thing for me is that chiwetel elkiafor took a pause after he was offered the part apparently he thought that it was just a massive weight of on his mind to undergo taking on solomon and he didn't know if he was the right individual for it well we're we're kind of happy that he chose to go with it indeed we are indeed we are christian (laughs) That being said, you ready to start discussing and uh, critiquing the film, Scott? Oh, I am so ready to start critiquing, Christian. <laughs> Very well, then. Now, 12 Years a Slave 
comes out in 2013. Based, well, is an adaptation of the 1853 slave memoir, 12 Years a Slave by Solomon Northup. Wins Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Supporting Actress for Lupita Nyong'o. This film can now be looked at in the canon of all Best Picture winners of all time. My question to you, Scott, to just kick this off, which you've already answered, is, is it a worthy addition to it? And I'm not asking you just, is it worthy? Because you're going to say yes, and I understand that. It's more... What does this movie add to the canon? That is a great question. And as someone who cares about the Oscars a lot and likes to argue about them and waste time thinking about them, talking about them, seeking out movies to watch, I really appreciate the question and I'm excited to dive in. I think 12 Years a Slave is rightly, as we talked about, one of the best best picture winners of the 2010s. And although I have not seen every Best Picture winner, I know that some consider it to be one of the best Best Picture winners of all time. And part of that is what movies win Best Picture? What movies get nominated for Best Picture? And maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're not a huge Oscars person. You like the movies, but you don't care about the awards. And that's that's a totally fair perspective. But the reason that it matters is because the Oscars function as sort of a his, just a history of the movies. And, of course, of American movies because foreign or non-American and non-British films are so infrequently recognized. But this is still a way of keeping track of the history of American film. And by choosing 12 Years a Slave to represent that legacy, I think they absolutely made the right choice because, again, it's not just an exceptional movie. I would argue this is a masterpiece from Steve McQueen. It is also just an important historical document, and we need more movies about black Americans and black stories being told by by black artists and black filmmakers. And, and that's why the Oscars are criticized for things like hashtag Oscars so white and why the Oscars are criticized when they pass over worthy performances from actors of color in favor of nominating five white nominees or pass over women who are directing or non-white directors in favor of five white directors. Because of course we need more of these awards worthy films being made by people from diverse backgrounds and needing black storytellers in particular to be telling these black stories. And 12 Years a Slave kind of comes out right before the the onset of the Black Lives Matter movement, which would start up in the 2010s. And this conversation has been brought far more to the fore of our cultural conversation around movies over the past six or seven years, in part because of social media, bringing these things more to bear and being able to talk about conversations like Black Lives Matter, like Oscars So White, and and for, for all of those reasons, and probably more that I'm missing on, I think 12 Years a Slave is one of the more important Best Picture winners from the last 10 years, just reflecting on just the history of film and the history, the recent history of, of film. And so absolutely, in terms of worthiness, uh, this is a worthy, worthy choice. And I'm sure that as I continue to watch Best Picture winners over my long and hopefully happy life, 
that I, I'm sure this will continue to be one of my favorites in terms of those that have won. I think I'm on record as saying this, and I think I'm on record to you as saying this. To me, as I guess, sure, I can take on the label of filmmaker of color because that's technically what I am. <laughs> it is. It has never been that um, we need to nominate movies of color. To me, it has always been filmmakers of color can make pretty fantastic films. They can make pretty terrible movies also. But when they make something beautiful and worthy of recognition, they should be recognized. So kind of going off of that, we see that Steve McQueen likes his quiet and his intimate natures, his small spaces, even though we're on a plantation for most of this film. It, we're kind of very much in tuned and closed into Michael Fassbender's face or Chibatel Echiofor's face or Lupita Nyong'o's face. We, uh, space does not exist the way that it normally does. It is reduced so that the brutality is first and foremost. And in terms of showing us horror, similar to your beloved Mangrove, a movie that I deeply, deeply enjoyed from last year, it's in your face and it needs to be in your face for you to see what's going on. And again, in terms of thinking about why 12 Years a Slave is such a good movie, such a masterpiece, I would, I would say, is that it is, he's using the strength of the filmmaking to tell the story in the right way. He's not necessarily zhuzhing anything up or really focusing on the tragedy to try to create drama where there isn't or lying about the history. This is largely a very historically accurate or at least accurate to the memoir movie. And the the filmmaking, this intimacy that you're talking about is what gets us involved without, without going for glitz and glam the way that movies about tragedies can go. And I guess I don't have um, a comparison or like an analog in my head, but the ways that the, that movies about hardship or tragedy, especially ones that get nominated for awards or even movies about slavery or race relations can often become about that one big speech that someone gives where they're breaking down and, and weeping and overacting <laughs> and trying to get their, their Academy award and there are certainly big moments in 12 Years a Slave. There are some moments where the actors are really trying their best and, and going for it. But the rest of the movie is defined by this strong and intimate filmmaking that's not trying to show off for the sake of showing off, but rather just to tell this story and tell it excellently. And it's just a, a textbook example of how to do a historical bio, biographical movie well. The, uh, in terms of biodramas, this is better than a regular biodrama. And I think the reason for that is it, it doesn't focus on every single detail and aspect of the 12 years. I honestly, it could be like 20 years a slave, three years a slave, 34 years a slave. The time isn't really what's first and foremost and i think that some biopics get caught up in telling us 
oh, it's a new day, it's a new year, this is where we're at. And I think that bogs down their movies and is what is liberating here. Because we're more focused on kind of the experiences that Solomon probably kept in mind afterward. He's not writing down on day five of month four of captivity, this is what occurred. But no, it's like, I had some drinks with these people and found myself locked up. Or I turned around and this woman was looking at me and then used my hand to pleasure her. It's specific instances like that, which which are very much what I take away from it. I can recall basically every single aspect of this film. And that's because every single aspect of this film is an event that's memorable. Now, let's... um. Let's divide this up into three different things. What won the movie for you? The direction, the performances, or the screenplay? And and the reason I'm saying that is because there are the big five categories of all Oscars. You have Best Actor and Best Actress, Best Direction, Best Screenplay, Original or Adapted, and Best Picture. So let's go off of those three categories that we can divide them into. If those are my three categories, then... I am going to say it is the direction. And I think that 12 Years a Slave is also a a good movie to watch if you want to know what a well-directed movie looks like and also what a well-shot movie looks like in terms of the cinematography. And the director of photography here is Sean Bobbitt, who actually got nominated this year for Judas and the Black Messiah. And it made me angry to look back and realize that his camera work wasn't nominated for 12 Years a Slave because he and Steve McQueen collaborated for a brilliantly shot movie. And that is why I'm leaning the direction. I think that in with the performances even, that McQueen is bringing out the best in a lot of these performers. And of course, a great performance is usually the strength of the actor as well as the direction that they're receiving. And often great actors like Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington, you know, people who can do this in their sleep at this point don't always need great direction. They can just click into it and they're, and they're rolling, but that truly great performances often come in combination with actors and directors. And I think McQueen's fingerprints are all over this movie, whether it is in the, the intimacy of his camera. And like you noted earlier, often getting up in the face of the performers, both black and white or the ways that he chooses to really point out the fact that any white person who condoned slavery in any form was evil whether it was a blasé passive evil or an outright evil like like epps michael fassbender's character and the way that he chooses to criticize Christianity and, and religion and the way that it kept slaves down by, by using the Bible as a way of subjugating and, and owning people. So many of these different aspects of it are his concerns coming to the fore and the way that he is telling this story. In addition, of course, to Ridley's screenplay and the performances of his actors, but I think that this really is McQueen's movie. And it's, it's often said that when you're talking about the roles of the people behind the camera, that the director is often like the ringmaster of the circus, the person who helps bring every department together from the actors to the costumers, to the production designer, to the cameraman. 
pulling all of them together and helping the movie function. And this is just such a, a symphony of different departments working well together. And I think McQueen absolutely deserves credit. He's, of course, not the only person who's turning in incredible work here. It's not purely him, but just in terms of whose fingerprints are all over the place, it's McQueen. I have to say, for me, the the winner of this is is the performances. And it's interesting to even look at it because obviously some of these performances wouldn't be what they are without Steve McQueen and without the source material that we have from Ridley. But the performances are staggering. What Ahiofor asks Solomon manages to do because he's playing several different parts. He is playing not just a loving husband, but also at times someone who uh, doesn't know kind of how great it is that he was born a free black man and coming to terms with at times some ignorance of how he was able to live so well in New York without the struggles of other black individuals in that area. Or even the the horrors in Lupita's character as she goes through someone trying desperately to survive who will sleep with the master in order to get to that well honestly it's not even that she will sleep she is raped but she will say that she is okay with it just so that she can get to a point where it it, she's treated more favorably because at times liberation and the idea of that will elude them and all that they can hope for is let's do things that are less bad and even that's brought up it's like under the the under the circumstances scene that occurs earlier on in the movie and how solomon's like under the circumstances he's not a bad slave owner and the other individual says under the circumstances he's a slave owner all of those parts being presented. Also, Michael Fassbender, I kind of hesitate to say that he was incredible in this movie because I don't want to say that you can be that amazing at being a slave driver and being a racist. But yes, he does show his anger and he does show his lust very, very well. They're just people whom you can't look away from. And they're people who you kind of want to look away from. It's uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable. I don't want to see an individual trying to come to terms with the fact that she gets raped on a semi-consistent basis. But it's there for you to understand. And I don't think other actors or other aspects of the film have made me understand as much as they did. I I just can't fault you at all <laughs> disagreeing with me because the performances are astounding. And... Lupita Nyong'o is someone I've been thinking about since I watched it. And in particular, why, you know, why did she win the award for this? Why did she receive acclaim? And a lot of times these big performances, ones that get nominated for and win awards, I think particularly of Leonardo DiCaprio when he eventually won Best Actor for The Revenant, that people will often say it's often not the best performance there or the best acting that gets an award, but the most acting. And that was something that people criticized leo for in that he didn't necessarily give the best performance of that year but he did the most acting with all the method stuff he did on set with uh, inyari 2 on that movie and surviving in the wilderness 
eating being mauled by a bear yeah <laughs> everything he did he was sort of given the career achievement award oscar which i still thought he gave a great performance in the revenant i know that's a somewhat divisive movie doesn't really matter because we're not talking about it here but in terms of lupita nyong'o's performance it checks some of those similar boxes she has a big speech she has a screaming crying breakdown moment she suffers her character suffers but the word that came to mind regarding nyong'o not necessarily the character because she's the character isn't necessarily vulnerable but i think of vulnerability when i think of lupita nyong'o in this performance the way that she was willing to give of herself to to tell the story of patsy who to the best of my knowledge is is in fact based on a real person that was on the plantation with solomon northup to tell this woman's story that captures this the the suffering and abuse that so so many women endured on plantations being raped by their masters and in turn, because of that, being abused by the master's wives. And Patsy literally wants to die. And she asks Solomon, Just, will you kill me? God will give you mercy. Because for me to die would be mercy. The vulnerability that she brings to play this woman is astounding. And that's part of why her performance is so good. And, and yes, technically, it's a sound performance. The, the, you know, the voice that she's doing, the accent is spot on. And she carries herself like this woman may have but the the ways that she breaks down and gives of herself to tell this woman's story just moved me immensely and the the emotional challenges of playing patsy must have been devastating <laughs> and i hope that she i hope that she felt satisfied with her work here uh because it's it's just astonishing yes now the uh, in in terms of the only third aspects of the film that we haven't covered yet. What were your thoughts on the screenplay on Ridley's adaption adaptation? I am not always the best at analyzing screenplays unless it's like Aaron Sorkin and there's tons of witty one-liners and I can say, I like the one-liners. Those were good. Or there's an audacious structure like we talked about with a lot of our unreliably narrated movies from last month. And we can say, ah, the structure is great in Memento because it's telling the story these two different ways. It meets at the end. It's fascinating and propulsive. So I, I honestly don't have a lot to, to say about the screenplay. <laughs> I think that it is, it is, by and large, very good work from John Ridley. I have no qualms with him winning an award. And in terms of adapting it, like I said, it, I, I saw that it was considered to be very faithful to Northup's book and what would have been his experience. And so even in that and bringing, choosing to focus on authenticity, which so many historical movies do not <laughs> play fast and loose with history, that is certainly to be praised as well. And one thing that he does do quite well is just move along the passage of time, going from moment to moment and through words showing us how Solomon both changes and learns to play the game of the slave while also always being true to himself and having his education come through at the right moments to remind us that he still is holding on to that part of him of himself. But that that's, that's about it. There's the famous line that Solomon doesn't want to survive. He wants to live. 
that was all over the trailers <laughs> and probably played during the Oscars when they showed that he was one of the nominees. But I don't know. Like, tell me more about why, or tell me more about your thoughts on the screenplay. You're our resident writer here. I, I would love to know what else stood out to you. I am a fan of how he was able to, and, and like I said before, just focus on key events. So he gave Steve McQueen key events that he could direct, and it wasn't bogged down by details. We didn't need to know necessarily the details of where they're at. Many of these plantations kind of looked similar to me. (laughs) At times, I wasn't sure necessarily which people were which people, but that's because that wasn't the point. Now, the, the screenplay was kind of... Um... It, it, it's not the most screenplay screenplay. Let's just say that. And I I haven't read the books. So I don't know how accurate they are. I think that some of the dialogue was too on the nose. Or even theatrical at times. Yes. Very much so. And so I don't know if that needed to be there. Because the structure of the screenplay worked well without needing to get it wasn't bogged down but i didn't need the dialogue to be so abrupt at times when there was no need for it there was no call for it i would say that the screenplay was the weakest aspect of these three things with it still being incredibly strong simply due to the structure and the nature that it was presented in right it's like getting an a minus and everybody else in the class gets an a (laughs) (laughs) i think something else that i can say that again i i don't know how much how much to attribute this to Ridley or to McQueen, but they're, how can I say this? Much of 12 Years a Slave, to me, played out like a horror movie. And I'm not sure how much of that is from the screenplay or how McQueen chose to realize it, but the just the despicable and heinous nature of chattel slavery is is horrific. And hundreds of thousands i i don't know if that's the number but thousands upon thousands of people lost to their lives or significant portions of it in the case of solomon northup to this system and the the word is horrific and so by playing up the horror tendencies of this story i i thought that made for an effective choice as well whether it is the ways that violence and danger waits at every turn the ways that the slaves have to play this game to survive, whether it's lying about who they are and and forgetting their actual name. Solomon, of course, is renamed Platt by the uh, kidnappers who then sell him into slavery. Or the ways that characters like Epps are just monsters lying in wait, waiting for any anything to happen out of the ordinary to strike and can do whatever they want because they own these people and they see them as property. The The horror aspects of this story are, are part of what makes it, again, such a <laughs> a fascinating movie to watch, if not always a safe or, or easy movie to watch. And the violence is unsettling. And the sexual violence in particular is also unsettling. And those horrific aspects still, again, tell this authentic, true, historical story that that fascinated me on a rewatch and reminding myself how horrific this system was 
And I don't know how much of that to attribute to Ridley. Maybe that's that's how he chose to write Epps as this this monster always waiting to strike. And perhaps it was working with McQueen and, and how they brought it out. But there's another aspect to it that I that I liked. And so I, I guess maybe I was too quick to say I didn't have much to say on the screenplay because now I've I've talked about it <laughs> at length. But I, I, did you notice the horror tendencies? Is that just the, was that just me? I did. I did notice the horror tendencies. Uh... I did. I think that it worked well. I think it worked well. I, I don't have much else to say about it because the the issue with horror movies most of the time is that they're in attempts to get rid of hope in the audience. Whereas the presence of 12 Years a Slave was and a hope that should not be diminished. So I, I actually think that that dichotomy was very well presented. Well, Scott, uh, it's kind of all I've got. Anything else before we wrap up our discussion? I I did want to touch a little bit more on Sean Bobbitt's cinematography because I know that you didn't have a chance to say much about it, but this is maybe an area that I'm more curious about just because I, I love a well-shot movie. And I think a tendency for people who love cinematography is, and I know we both listen to a podcast where the hosts, you know, poke fun about this but it's easy to point out ooh, the shots great shots in this movie so many pretty shots but i think like i said earlier this is an example of a well shot movie and not just in terms of establishing a visual identity for the movie but in telling the story and there are a couple things they do throughout that really got me anytime they happened and one for example are unbroken long unbroken takes that usually show something terrible happening and people in the background carrying on like it's nothing. So, for example, one of the more famous scenes, or at least the one that's stuck in my head <laughs> from when I last watched it, is there is an attempted lynching where Solomon is... He attacks one of the overseers at one of the plantations he works on. That overseer runs off, comes back later with, the, with two of his buddies, and they put a rope over his neck and string him up over a tree. And Solomon escapes with his life because the you know, head slave driver or whatever wants to protect his master's investment. And so he tells them that he'll, he'll kill the white guys if they kill Solomon. And of course that guy does not let Solomon down because Solomon still acted out and attacked this white man, which of course is a no, no. And so Solomon stands on his tippy toes for a long while waiting for somebody, anybody to come help him. And life returns to normal after the three men ride off. And so Solomon is left clinging to life, still being strung up over this tree, standing on his tippy toes so his neck doesn't break. And people start milling about in the background, going about their business. Kids even are playing because this horrific evil is just their day-to-day life. And by focusing on this one take, it not only allows the actors to shine, but also doesn't distract from how horrible and evil this is with quick cuts or flashy editing. And it's again, like really bringing out just the horrific authenticity to this story. It's moments like that from, from the camera work that really got me. And I don't know if you have any moments that stood out to you in particular with the camera, or if you just had any other comments in general, there's more that I could say, but (laughs) I don't mean to monologue. Just a couple of things on that. I did notice it. The camera is very close to everyone at all times. 
when Patsy is being raped, the camera's right on her face. When Solomon is just staring up at the ceiling at night because he can't sleep, the camera's up on, on his face. When uh, when we see Benedict Cumberbatch's into, um, character by this one woman, but not her children, and she continuously cries over the fact that her children are gone, the camera is there. There's no space. And at times, the camera will act as a barrier for people. The camera, it's like, you are here and the movie is there. That barrier was dissolved. That is what I noticed most from the cinematography and what I think made the direction the most impactful. That that intimacy is so important, like we talked about. And there's a moment that is going to stick with me for a while, I'm sure. And probably just my, my sheer moment of the movie. But McQueen weaves in these poetic touches throughout. And he'll take a pause from the the horrors of plantation life to focus on the natural beauty of of the Louisiana environment that he was shooting in, whether it's the rippling water across a river or willow trees blowing in the wind. He'll, he'll take a pause to focus on some of these beautiful moments. And there's a moment near the end where he cuts away from the action just to, and we see Solomon just standing, looking at something off screen and, and we're, we're watching him. And so much has happened. He's been kidnapped. He's been beaten. He's been threatened. He's had his life almost taken from him multiple times. He's gone through so much. And we just see him stand there and, and exist for a minute on screen before his eyes are kind of darting back and forth. And eventually they rest on the camera so that uh, Ejufor is staring right at us. And we have this moment where we're forced to connect with the character. And it's a also just a brilliant moment of, you know, writing yourself into the movie. And, and you can take anything you want from that moment. And there's something that black viewers may may have in that moment that I can't have. And I'm sure that you experience something different in that moment, being a Hispanic person and, and myself being a white person, that maybe there are different things with our lens or our bias that we're bringing into that moment. And we might experience something different. And I, I know for me, that moment felt like being asked the question, do you, do you see my humanity? Do you see who I am? Do you see this struggle? Are you, are you watching closely? Are you following along? Can you, can you understand that this happened, that this brutality was allowed to exist? And so much more happening all in this one moment of Bobbitt's camera holding on SGO4 as he stares directly down at the lens. And it's one of these you know, master strokes that McQueen goes for that, again, all compiles together with everything else that's excellent about this movie. That even feels out of place in some of these, out of place from the standard biopic or docu or historical drama format that I, I just thought was brilliant. And I, I do want to know, you know, did, what did you take away from that moment? If you even know exactly what I'm talking about. It's a very introspective thing. That's the word. That's what I should have said. <laughs> Thank you for being smart. I will say the one thing that I wish had not been in this film is its score. I wanted silence at that time. I kind of wanted silence throughout this entire movie. 
and to have that introspection was phenomenal to kind of just wrestle with what it is this movie is having you wrestle with in terms of your own position in America in terms of what this movie means for the future in terms of timeline and how it is that black individuals have their history and what exactly uh, is being presented by this director and by this writer and overall and what the story of Solomon is I wanted silence and at certain of these times, I couldn't have it because of the score. And I didn't mean to turn what you said, what you said was great, into a negative. <laughs> but I remember the score. And I was so furious. But That's funny, because I remember that moment being quiet. <laughs> but maybe I was just being introspective. Anyway. All right, Scott. Tell the people what's coming up. So that is 12 Years a Slave. If you enjoyed our discussion and you'd like to see it for yourself or... You're just looking to watch it again. I don't know. It is available to stream on Hulu. So this month, we're doing 2010's Best Picture winners. It is a theme that I chose, but one that Christian is curating. So I, I, I feel bad, you know, pigeonholed you into only 10 choices. But you're going to pick some good ones, and I'm excited about it. And so we're going a little out of sequence here, because next week, we'll actually be focusing on a more recent winner. So, Christian, you know, it was your choice. I'll let you announce what's coming next. It's 2019's Parasite. Oh, let's go. It's Parasite. Everybody get excited. A movie that we talked about a little bit on a test episode for this podcast when we did our top 10 movies of 2019. A, a test episode we did before the show actually even launched. And at the time, Christian roasted me because Parasite wasn't on my list for best for the 10 best movies of the year. And I will have you know... That if I were to make that list again, Parasite would most assuredly be on that list and it would be near the top. So I'm very excited. Well, you can't make that list again. So that mistake has been noted. I absolutely can make that list again. No, <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. It's over. All right. Cool. What in the world? There's so many movies. How can you not revise your top 10 list of any given year? It's oh, Scott, it's over. It's not over. 2019 is now. Parasite is also available to stream on Hulu or if you're like me. Available to stream from the Criterion Collection Blu-ray that your in-laws got you for Christmas. Thanks, Grandpa Homer. I appreciate you. If you have reached this point in the show, we thank you so much for your support. As always, Christian and I love making this show, and it's exciting to know that people are out there listening along. We appreciate you a lot. If you can, there are a few things that you can do to support us and help us reach new listeners. Number one, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. Helps us reach new listeners there, and we'd be happy to read your thoughts live on the air, as we have for those who've left reviews in the past. You can also follow us a few different places. You can follow us on Twitter, where we are tweeting with the fans, trying to engage there, and obviously that helps us reach new listeners. Retweet us, if you please. Hate to be that guy, but it'd be great. And you can also follow Christian and myself on Letterboxd, where we are rating and reviewing the things that we're watching. Uh, I am permanently behind on my Letterboxd reviews, but I will have something about about time coming here shortly, because I still, <laughs> at the time of this recording at least, have not written that review since we talked about it on the show a couple weeks ago. Christian, any, any hot reviews for you on Letterboxd recently? Not recently. I, I, a couple ratings... But nothing recent. There you go. You can get on Christian's letterbox to leave him comments asking him to, to write more reviews. 
You can also send us an email at cinemadrippodcast at gmail.com. We love to read listener feedback that we get. And of course, it's helpful to consider as we think about potential blends of the month that you would like us to focus on. Our long gestating magic blend of the month will be coming at some point, dear listener Paul Gonzalez, I promise you. But otherwise, if you wanted to drop us a line, we would really appreciate your feedback. And depending on the content, obviously, we can read it live on the air as well. Christian, any final thoughts for those listening along at home? None? No. None? Nothing at all? Okay. Well, Parasite is available to stream on Hulu. Check it out there. Or come on over to my apartment and we'll throw it in the Blu-ray player. But otherwise, I'm Scott. He's Christian, and this has been the Cinema Drip Podcast.